The Feminist Press is a partner of Fierce Women Writing. Founded in 1970 and celebrating their 50th anniversary, The Feminist Press seeks to create a world where everyone recognizes themselves in a book. A nonprofit and independent publisher, they support storytelling that ignites movements and inspires social transformation. The Feminist Press lifts up insurgent and marginalized voices from around the world to build a more just future. Learn more about their books at feministpress.org. Welcome to Fierce Women Writing, a podcast where female voices are elevated, creativity is ignited, and writers are inspired. I believe that stories can enlighten, heal, and entertain the reader and the writer. First, the writer has to quiet their doubts long enough to get the words on the page. I'm here to help you put your doubts away and focus on your creativity. Every day I talk to writers and would-be writers who aren't writing. They're not writing because they don't think they're good enough, because they've been rejected, don't have time, or don't know where to start. That's why I created this show, so that you can hear from other writers who want to inspire you to share the stories that only you can tell. I'm Sarah Gallagher. Come write with me. Hey there, Fierce Writers. Today's guest is Maisie Card. Maisie Card is a writer and a public librarian. Her writing has appeared in Guernica, School Library Journal, AGNI, Lenny Letter, and other publications. Her debut novel, These Ghosts Are Family, was published in March by Simon & Schuster. Maisie's going to start the show for us with an excerpt from These Ghosts Are Family. Let's say that you are a 69-year-old Jamaican man called Stanford, or Stan for short, who once faked your own death. Though you have never used those words to describe what you did, at the time you thought of it as seizing an opportunity placed before you by God. But since your wife, Adele, died a month ago, you've convinced yourself her heart attack was retribution for your sin. So today you have gathered three of your female descendants in one house, even the daughter who has thought you dead all these years and decided that you will finally tell them the truth. You are not who you say you are. You have spent the last 20 years of your second life living in a brownstone in Harlem, running a West Indian grocery store. Recently, you shutter the store. You have given up on fighting your arthritis pain and are finally sitting in the wheelchair Adele picked out. You are looking out of your parlor window, waiting for your daughter, the one who thinks you are dead, to arrive. It's been 35 years since you've seen her, so you study each woman who passes your house for reflections of yourself. You haven't bothered to shave, press your clothes, or comb your hair. You are ready to be still and rot. You imagine the death of Sanford Solomon, unlike the abrupt end of Abel Paisley, will be achingly slow. Already it feels like you are losing small pieces of yourself daily. To you, old age is the torture you deserve, a slow, insignificant death, your matter dispersing into the air like dandelion seeds until the day there's nothing left. When you died the first time, you were, you were still a young man in your 30s and had been working in England for less than a year. It wasn't easy for an immigrant, especially a black man, to find a decent job back then. But through a boy you'd known back in primary school, Stanford, you'd gotten a room and a job on a ship. You had no idea it was just the beginning of your streak of good luck. 
You and Stanford were the chosen wogs they allowed to work alongside the white men. Stanford complained often about London. He hated the cold. He missed his grandmother and the tiny village, Harold Town, where you'd both grown up back in Jamaica. You'd already escaped the countryside for Kingston, and from there, London. You felt free. That sense of freedom and joy only dampened when you thought of the family you left behind. Your first wife, Vera, wrote you long letters weekly about how you'd abandoned her and left her to become a dried-up old spinster. But you both know perfectly well that it was her idea for you to go to England, where she thought you'd somehow become a better provider. Your son, Vincent, was still in Vera's womb when you sailed off. Your daughter, Irene, a stumbling toddler. You had barely settled in when Vera's first letter arrived with a list of things she wanted to, to buy and send them. With every letter, the list grew longer, and you worried that you would never be enough. The day you died, you were running along the dock because you were late for work, while a container was being lowered onto the ship. You stopped short when you heard the container fell, dropped from the crane, and thundered against the deck. You were close enough to hear the screaming. Who was it? You heard someone shout. One of the wogs, another answered. It's Abel. For a moment, you were confused, hearing yourself pronounced dead. It was like one of those movies where the dead person's spirit stands by watching as a crowd gathers around his body. But no, you were certain it wasn't your body, so you boarded the ship. The captain approached you immediately and said, I'm sorry, mate, no way Abel could have survived that. You almost laugh now when you think of it. The one time racism worked in your favor. The captain had gotten his wogs confused, looked you right in the eye, and mistaken you for the other black guy. Abel was dead, crushed under the container, unrecognizable, but you, Stanford now, could turn and go home. Perhaps it's telling about your nature that you did not hesitate. You nodded and turned and walked away quickly from Abel and all his responsibilities before any of the others had a chance to recognize you. What a great excerpt from These Ghosts Are Family by Maisie Card. Welcome to the show, Maisie. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Maisie, what are the ideal conditions for you to write? You know, I, I've never been very good at about writing in my own home. I really like need to be in a library actually or a coffee shop or um, somewhere else. Like lately I'm working on another book and I've been writing outside, which has been really nice. Um, you know, I think those are, that's pretty much my idea, my ideal condition. Um, you know, it's been kind of like a blessing and a curse, I guess, uh, what's been going on because I have been working from home. So now I have a lot of freedom and I can kind of set my own schedule. So I've really been able to like see what the best day and, you know, time of day for me to start writing is and, um, you know, the best places. So I love writing kind of in the mornings outside in parks, you know, on benches so far. Why do you write? I think I write to understand, you know, I think I really started writing uh, to understand my family um, you know, because just growing up, I felt like everybody was very secretive and withdrawn. And I think, you know, in order for me to fully understand and kind of have empathy and compassion for my parents and for other people, like I just needed to write their story so I could could really get inside their heads. What are your best writing tips? 
I think read, just um, read very widely, read frequently, Um, you know, just try to, when you're starting out, at least like try to imitate styles. I think also to, you know, draw from your own experience and your your family. (laughs) I'm a big fan of that. Your recent book was a novel. Did you draw from your family in that? Yeah, um, it's a family saga. So, you know, it's, it's very fictional. You know, it's, I started writing it probably 12 years ago. Um, but the early seeds actually came in college when I was writing creative nonfiction. Yeah, I, a lot of it really was inspired by family stories, like, especially stories told to me by my mother, you know, about my father, about my grandparents, about a lot of people that I really never had the chance to get to know. What are your suggestions for someone trying to overcome a block? I think just read. I mean, I feel like it's been very hard for me to get inspired since the pandemic has started. And I just have really been um, just reading as much as I can. I think, you know, even if you feel like what you're reading is not inspiring, then just read something else. Like keep, um, I, I just kind of keep searching until I find that one book that really um, kind of sets me off writing. Um, That's always been what's worked for me. What about editing and revising tips? I think, you know, it, this first book was very difficult for me because I didn't know, (laughs) I didn't know anything about editing and revising. Um, So I'm kind of eager to learn, to see the difference when I go into the second book I'm working on. You know, my tips are just to, you know, if you're a student, to listen to all the feedback, but, you know, don't take things at face value, really, like, sit with it a bit. And I think also, you know, the kind of kill your darlings advice is kind of like a mixed, it's kind of a mixed bag in a way, like, I never, if there's something I like in a book, I never really truly get rid of it. But uh, sometimes I'll take something out of one novel or one story and I'll kind of save it and it'll reappear in another form in another piece of writing. Um, so I'm a big like recycler of my own writing. I never really completely, I guess you could say, edit things out. Can you estimate your submission to publication ratio? Oh, Um I think I was using Duotrope, that site, you know, that charges $5 a month for a submission tracker. And I think when I put in everything just before my book got published, I don't know, I think it was like 1%. <laughs> uh, it was something very low, but they were saying that um, I was doing better than most people. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, use, I used a couple of different... Um, trackers for submissions and I just remember on one one tracker I think I think on submittable I think I had submitted maybe like 60 submissions and I got one one submission accepted you know and on Duotrope it was something else so it's it's very low. (laughs) Who are some other women writers we should be reading right now? Um, You know one of my favorite writers has always been Michelle Cliff. Um, She's a Jamaican writer um, who passed away, I think, uh, maybe in 2005, 2006. You know, I think if people enjoy my book, which is set in Jamaica and uh, has a lot, a lot of focus on Jamaican culture, they would really enjoy Michelle Cliff. I feel like she was the first writer that I'd ever read that really critiqued colonialism and colorism in Jamaica, you know, from like an internal point of view as somebody who 
is from the island and also is an immigrant to America. I thought her perspective was interesting. And also right now I'm reading, or I, I have read Lakewood by Megan Giddings and we're actually doing an event together. Um, she published her debut this year as well. And where can listeners find you online? They can find me at maziecard.com. They can also find me on Instagram at Library Love Fest and also on Twitter, which but I really don't tweet very often at, at DRACM, D-R-A-C-M. Thank you for sharing your writing and wisdom with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Now it's time for our writing prompt. I suggest setting a timer for six or eight minutes, putting Maisie's prompt at the top of your page, and free writing whatever comes to mind. Remember, the important part is keeping your pen moving. You can always edit later. Right now, we just want to write something new and see what happens. So I'm going to give you the, a prompt that I was given in college. I was taking a nonfiction class at Wesleyan University with a writer named Elizabeth Bobrick, and her prompt, which actually kind of inspired my novel, was to write a story that you heard that happened before you were born. So this could be a story that a parent told you or another relative, but it happened before you were born, and you're just going to you know, write from whoever it's about their perspective. I've been fascinated with the theme that Maisie Card explored in her novel and that she shared with us in her writing prompt this week. The stories we hear in our families, particularly those that come from before our time. I've been reminded a lot lately of my Uncle Ralph. He was a jokester with a cackling laugh, and he lived just a few blocks away from us for most of my childhood. Ralph died when I was 18, but my own teenage son has been raised with so many stories of Uncle Ralph that he could easily explain to any guest the tale of how he built the giant model train that now resides in my parents' front room, or give examples of the wicked jokes he'd play on the nieces and nephews. Though my son never met him, he knows Ralph through these family stories that we tell and retell, reinforcing our own family folklore. I imagine my son using Maisie's writing prompt and writing from Ralph's perspective, and it feels like a bridge between generations. I hope you get a few minutes this week to use Maisie's prompt and see what family story and character you can tap into. If listening to the podcast has been helpful to your writing practice, become a supporter on my website. With a recurring monthly contribution of as little as $2, you can help me ensure that these interviews continue to happen. I'm Sarah Gallagher, and this is Fierce Woman Writing. I'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Until then, keep writing. Become a supporting member of the podcast with a monthly contribution at FierceWomenWriting.com. Get more writing prompts and engage with other writers on our Instagram page at FierceWomenWriting. Remember, women is spelled with an X. You can also help us reach more writers by sharing this episode with a friend and subscribing, downloading, and reviewing the podcast. Thank you for listening.